What had happened was I was wrongfully convicted of kidnapping, rape, and armed robbery, something I had absolutely nothing to do with. Yeah, now you're trying to spread the word about it, right? I'm screaming from every mountaintop, from every corner of the world. I am an exoneree with the Ohio Innocence Project. I served 20 years in prison for a crime I did not commit. I'm on the board of the project now, so what an honor for me to be on a board of an uh, organization that saved my life. Thanks for finding the What Had Happened Was podcast. It's me, Amelia Robinson from Dayton.com, and the voice you just heard belongs to Fairborn resident Roger Dean Gillespie. As you will find out in this episode, he was thrown into a nightmare when he was accused of raping three women right here in the Dayton area in 1988, even though there was no evidence connecting him to these horrific crimes. Dean, as he is known, spent 20 years in what he has described as pure hell. Several more years passed before he was fully exonerated thanks to help from Ohio's Innocence Project. Now Dean is telling his story as a way to prevent this from happening to other innocent people. We talk about what it was like for him to be an innocent man in Ohio's nastiest prisons and what impact that has had on his life and that of his family. He also explains how journalists and lawyers in training helped set him free. The What Had Happened Was podcast is a product of Dayton.com, sponsored by Cox Digital Marketing. Let this trusted name in advertising find solutions for your digital needs. Rate and subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, and wherever else you find your favorite shows. And please tell your friends about this episode. The more people who hear Dean's story, the better for democracy. Now here's that talk with Dean Gillespie. What were you doing at the time this all happened? You were a young man, right? You were, what, in your 20s? or? Yeah, well, I turned 25 in the county jail. Got out of high school. I was working at General Motors. When I walked out of high school, I started working at GM internship. That led to a job there. Worked there for five years. So you were just working, living your life? Yeah, I was, I was working there. I had a, a little business. I was doing remodeling for two real estate companies in town. I was flipping houses myself. Yeah, I was busy trying to make money. I was hustling. So the world was kind of your oyster at that point, right? You could, could have done anything you wanted to. I was doing everything I wanted to. At 21 years old, I bought my first house. 17 years old, I bought my first vehicle, brand new order from General Motors. I was hustling. I was trying to make a, trying to make some good money in my life. Did you have a family at that point? Or? No, no. I was single. Uh, well, I was dating, but to no family. You sit back now and, and wonder what could have happened. Would I have had children or what, you know? But going through the experience and seeing the guys who had children who had to come in and visit I don't know how they've done it to right. watch those kids go out that door. I just don't know how they've done it. I mean, I've got a, a nephew and a, two nieces and a, a great niece. Oh, it's hard enough with them, you know, much less being my own kids. So you were taken off whenever they arrested you. Did you ever go home at that point? They arrested me. I was in for two weeks. They uh, finally gave me a bond, and I was out till the trial. Did you think it was going to go away, or do you think, oh, this is a mistake? You know, I, I know I didn't do it. Well, yeah, back in the day, you know, whoever believed any innocent person went to prison. You know, this was 1991. Actually started in 1990. Never heard of anybody going to prison innocent. Never dreamed it was a possibility in America. So it didn't even dawn on me that I would ever be convicted of something like this. Not only that, but after quite a while of trying to figure out, you know, this case was two and a half years old. So they came to me and they're asking me, where was I at on this day two and a half years ago? I didn't know where I was at a week you know, ago. I don't know where I was at yesterday. Now, it took a long time to figure out where I was at, and I was with three other people in Kentucky. We finally broke it down and figured out where we were at, and it was with three buddies of mine in Kentucky camping on one of the nights. From what I understand, it was three people who were raped, right? Correct. At two different times, right? Correct. Was it like two raped at once or something like that? Correct. Two twin sisters, yes. 
Did you know them at all, or did you have no. any connection to them at I have all? No clue who they are, you know, or anything about them. No. And and one thing I do want to say is I have no animosity towards these people whatsoever. Right. They were tricked. They were done wrong. Justice was never served for them in any way, form, or fashion. They done me wrong. They done them wrong. You know, the person who we believe committed this crime went on and committed more crimes, and I don't have no problem with them. It wasn't their fault. They were done wrong just like I was. You get arrested for a crime you know you didn't do. You get a, the biggest, best attorney in town. I mean, what was your mindset even? If somebody accused me of doing something, I know I didn't do it. I'd be like, well, they'll figure it out. What did you actually do? First thing you do is when it starts to get uh, crazy, yeah, well, I mean, I'm locked up. i got to get a lawyer. You know, you have to have a lawyer. So my parents ended up getting a lawyer, paying a lawyer. You think that they're going to straighten it out, like you said, but it just kept getting worse and worse. You were convicted one time. Yeah, February uh, 12th, 1991, I was convicted of kidnapping, rape, armed robbery. Three days later, some of the evidence that they had reappeared. We were able to do some tests on that, but that evidence was nobody's. It didn't match anybody, which, you know, is interesting. It didn't match anybody, but I'm still convicted. They had to had, to, had a new trial because of the fact of the new evidence being found. So they did the evidence again. We did the trial again. The jurors come out hung. They were hung jury twice. A judge told them first time to go have lunch, come back, study on it. They came back second time, said they were still hung eight to four in my favor. The judge read what's called a modified Allen charge. You're the best jurors. You've already heard the evidence. Everybody we're going to bring back in here is going to hear the same thing. You know, da-da-da. Then he said, if you don't reach a decision, you're going to be sequestered over the weekend. Really? Yeah. So 45 minutes later, I was convicted on all counts. Eight people turned their, from eight people saying not guilty turned around in 45 minutes because they had ball games to get to or whatever they had to get to. These are wear them down at that point. Yep. And that judge is why I got ultimately thrown out, right? Because they were given. No, the, actually the reason the uh, case was thrown out December uh, 17th, I believe it was 2011, mm-hmm. was a Brady violation where okay. the uh, evidence was not turned over to, to show my innocence. Had you been in trouble before, ever been in jail? No, uh, what was it like to go to jail? You know, I've what never, you know, you know, you're a young dude, like have a hot car, you got a house. It was unbelievable. I'd never seen anything like it. You know, still to this day, you know, you don't see anything like if, if, if your first time ever being in jail, you've never seen anything like it. If you went to three circuses, three nights in a row, you wouldn't see anything like it. It's just, it's crazy. It's absolute madness, mayhem. I guess you could call it controlled chaos. Like how? Like what? What do you mean? Like well, how? you got everybody wondering, you know, what's going on. You got the drunk drivers coming in. You got all just all forms of crime coming into one spot. People are, are you know, drugs or or whatever it is, and just they're all in one spot, in one cell, one place, and it's just like it's just a lot of madness. Did you tell them why you were in there? Did they know why you were in there in prison? No, I wasn't talking to anybody. Okay. Oh, in prison in, mm. or in a jail? Oh, oh, I'm sorry, prison. I yeah. couldn't imagine jail, let alone prison. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. Jail, yes. I didn't talk to nobody. I didn't know why. I had friends I've known my whole life. That's who I'm talking to, not people I've just met. I'll talk to anybody now, but back then, you know. You just but, kept to yourself? Yeah. And so when you went to prison, obviously, even more crazier than jail. Usually someone in there seen the news and knows why you're convicted and why you're in there. Uh, kidnapping, rape, and armed robbery, you know, the rape's not something you want to be in prison for. Right. You know, the only thing worse is child molesting. You definitely uh, don't want to be that. But people knew, and I didn't care. I didn't do it. Mm-hmm. You know, I didn't care what people said about me. I didn't do it. Did people mess with you about it? Like, um, like, I mean, there was people who would say, you know, it's a rapist, 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 you know. Say it to my face. Right. So did you become tough then, or how did you get through prison? If you're an innocent dude in jail, and you get all these people who actually, a lot of them probably did it, Yeah. how did you, as an innocent person, survive prison? Well, 
first prison I went to was uh, Warren Correctional in uh, Lebanon there, which is a close maximum security. 70% of those people are not going home. They don't care. Human life means nothing to them because they don't have one no more. They're doing life. The violence is overwhelming. It's absolutely overwhelming, the violence is. Your first few years is just trying to establish yourself that, you know, I'm not, don't mess with me. You know, you might beat me up, but, you know, I'm still going to fight. It doesn't matter you're winning or losing. It's that you are going to protect your stuff. So you got to do that. You know, it's like they say, win in Rome, those are Romans. So you got to go through that for several years, establish yourself. And, you know, for me, the Innocence Project came on. Once they do, there's a little more publicity. There's a little more things going on with it. And you were the first case that they took on, right? That's correct. I was the first case they took. Uh, 2003, they officially opened at the University of Cincinnati. Mark Gotze, professor there, director of the Ohio Innocence Project, and John Cranley opened it up in 2003 officially. How did they hear about you? It was an article in the newspaper, and one of my mother's friends seen it and called my mother and said, hey, they're going to open an Innocence Project in Cincinnati. And basically her and her friend got in the car and went and chased Mark down, tried to find him and <laughs> made him take the case. Luckily for me, there was a news station out of Cincinnati that took my case on as what happened here, what went wrong, why did this go this way, why is this guy in prison? Uh, there were several news stories about it. It was more than a mother just standing there screaming, my son's innocent. Right, because so a lot was, of mothers scream their sons right, are innocent. Yeah. Right, and there was an investigative reporting team there that worked a year and a half. They basically said, yeah, we'll take it. And I was the first case, the 14th person released. Wow. And to date, we have gotten 28 people out who served over 532 years. We did have the longest-serving innocent man, Ricky Jackson, served 39 years. He had two other co-defendants. Now there's a gentleman out of Michigan who served 47 years. 47 years. For a crime he had nothing to do with. So... Then, um, along with the Innocence Project, Jim Petro, who was the attorney general, when he left office, he came on to my case pro bono. And that changed the whole world. The whole thing gave you hope the whole time. Absolutely. And with him coming on, the publicity went through the roof then. Here's the attorney general. First time it ever happened in America. You know, that attorney general would come on the defense side of a wrongful conviction. Then him and his wife wrote a book called uh, False Justice. And then when that came out, it was a whole different. The attitude in the prison towards me changed quite a bit, you know. Uh, when Jim Petro and uh, Mark Gotze come into the London prison to visit me, the staff uh, completely changed their really? outlook. Yeah, I mean, because he used to be their boss. Right. You know, he was, uh, at one time, he was the auditor. He signed their check. Yeah, it changed a lot of attitudes and uh, things, you know, the last couple of years changed a little bit for me. Was it about eight years or so, right, from the time they took the case on to the time you got out? No. They took my case in late 2002. Two, okay. I got out in 2011. The prosecutor fought it every step of the way, and I was not totally exonerated till 2017. November 30th, 2017, I was the 2076 person to be exonerated in the United States. So this whole time you're sitting there waiting, you've seen other people get out of prison. What was that like to wait all that long time? Everything was going to happen? Well, the first place I was at, no one goes home. No one was going home. And the whole time that I was there, I probably seen two people get a parole from that prison. That was, that was mind-blowing. No one's leaving here. So when they shipped me from there, they shipped me to London. My first day in London, I was out front waiting on them. to They send you to, to wherever you got to be. The next morning, you meet down in the, what they call the main lobby down there. And there's 15 or 17 people going home that morning. Right. I'm like, wow, these guys are going home. I said, yeah, it's 15 people. 20 people go home every day. <laughs> you know, for 10 years, I never seen anyone go home. And, you know, now they're going 15 in a day. So, you know, that's going to a medium minimum security prison, which security levels change. People do go home from those prisons. And it was a whole different world. Went from a two-man cell 
to a cell block that had 300 people in it, beds side by side, head to head. And just, uh, it's, it's, it's a, it's a crazy transition because when you're in a cell, you know, at nine o'clock, the door's locked. It's you and your bunkie and that's it. Right. You go into a dormitory style setting. It's wide open. You don't know who's mad or who don't like you or who's got a vendetta against you or who just wants to crack your head. So the first little while you're just sleeping with one eye open for however long it takes you to get comfortable. So it's actually a little bit more frightening to be in the middle, like a lesser security. The thing is you have more freedoms. You can go out on the yard more. You can go to the gym more, whereas the close and max is very regimented on your every other days and, you know, all that stuff. So you get more freedoms, but you lose more privacy. Not that you have any privacy, but you lose a lot more. In the prison close max, you got a two-man cell. You got a sink and a toilet in there. The dormitory, you got seven toilets side by side, seven urinals, 21 sinks, and 14 shower heads. It's just wide open. It's just wide open living. Going from almost civilized to barbaric. Right. Yeah. How'd you keep humanity through this whole thing? Because a lot of people would be just pissed, right? Oh, Even if you got out, you'd be like, the world, right? Yeah. Pardon the interruption. Just popping in to remind you that you are listening to the What Had Happened Was podcast, and I'm Amelia Robinson. The Dayton area was hit by 15 tornadoes on Memorial Day. Days have passed and turned into weeks, and it'll soon be a month. But the need for help still remains. There are several ways you can help people recovering from the tornadoes. Two that come to my mind are the Dayton Foundation's Tornado Relief Fund and the Food Bank. Both are wonderful organizations. I've added links to this podcast description of ways to find out more. Now back to my talk with Dean. 20 years of your life is gone. Not to say that you didn't accomplish things through that time, but the things you were doing were building up for a life. Right. You know, how do you keep your humanity through something like that? Well, the first thing they do when you go into prison is they just completely, totally strip you of your humanity. That's the first thing that happens. I mean, the first two weeks you're in prison, you might as well just stay naked because everywhere you go, they just strip search you or you're taking you over here to, to strip search you here or walking you over here. And then all of a sudden they strip search you. It's just that we're in charge. It's their form of saying we're in charge. So uh, you go through all that. Then you get to prison. You got to figure out what you're going to do. You know, are you going to fall into the madness and chaos that's going on in there? Or are you going to figure out something that's going to keep your mind occupied to keep you sane? So I started doing art and uh, I listened to music and do art. Done quite a bit of art. Since my release, I've done several art shows and I've got two stories. My time in prison for being innocent and then the art that I did while I was in there. So it's nice to talk about the art, the other part of it, the part that kept me out of that prison mentally. And kept me sane. Were you an artist beforehand, or was no? You just uh, up in that prison? Not really. You know, I was uh, I was heavy into the in the construction world. I made a lot of furniture and things like that, but never art, fine art with paint and stuff. Do you ever sit back and just think, okay, my life would have been this, or I would have done this, or or is it is it even? Oh yeah, I've, I've seen it happen. You know, before me, I seen my buddies, guys I grew up with my whole life, known them my whole life. A lot of our parents grew up together. Get to watch them what they have achieved and what they've done in their lifetime. And some of them were on the same path I was with the houses, you know, and, you know, building rental properties and things like that to uh, to secure your retirement years. You know, I've got to watch them do it. And so I knew exactly, you know, where I was headed. We always try to find, like, reasons for things to happen. Like, this happened because, you know, X, Y, and Z, or was God's will or whatever people want to say. What have you come up with for that? 
I wish whatever it was, someone would point it out to me. Right. It's uh, 20 years of my life, the best years of my life. You know, when I'm setting your career, when you're setting your family and everything, you know, getting everything together. Those were the years from 25 to 45. Those are the best years of your life. If you get up every day thinking about that, you're going to be miserable. I try not to think about it. And I try not to think about what my life would have been or what it should have been or what it could have been. It's about what's it going to be tomorrow? What's it going to be today? It's I'm not going to look back. And the prosecutor had 20 years in my head. He had space in my head for 20 years. He's not getting no more. Not getting another minute of it in my head. What could have, would have, should have. Right. I'm not going to worry about it. What was the reason for it? I have no idea. I don't know what the reason was. The only good for me that's come out of it is I've traveled the world speaking about wrongful convictions and getting the word out to try to prevent this from happening anymore. Why do you think these things happen? These wrongful convictions generally? Uh, overzealous prosecution. Uh, I mean, the number one reason for wrongful convictions right now is 75 to 78% of the time is eyewitness testimony. Eyewitness, they just get it wrong. That's too much. People believe that when someone sees a crime, they remember it. We're talking about a case that was two and a half years old. My lawyer was on the stand and he asked 27 things about the description that they made and me when this was happening. Did the person who attacked you have severe acne on both sides of his face? Yes, he did. Obviously, Mr. Gillespie does not. Did the person who attacked you have a cleft chin? No, he did not. Obviously, Mr. Gillespie does. Did the person who attacked you have a dark suntan? Yes, he did. Very dark suntan. Obviously, Mr. Gillespie doesn't. Did the person who attacked you have gray hair? Since high school, I've had gray on both sides of my head. No, he did not. This went on and on and on. Why am I here? This description that you're saying was this person... Why am I sitting in this chair if none of this fits me? Their answer was, well, that they said, the officer has told us he's tried to change his appearance to get away with this. Yeah, how are you going to change your appearance that much, right? That much. Yeah, right. you can't all of a right. sudden have no acne. Yeah. Oh, when you're you have born a, with yeah. a cleft chin. Who puts that in her face? When I was reading about, the officer said it wasn't you at one point, right? Some well, officer said it wasn't you and it yes, yes. eliminated you as a suspect. What we had found out, yes, what we found out through all this was that was part of the Brady violation that happened in the uh, reason the federal court threw it out. Also, the state court threw it out on alternate suspect five months after I was out. But the reason was the officers the night of the crime had done reports and they knew the size of pants this guy wore. So the guy from General Motors takes my information down to uh, the police department that he used to work at and says, check this guy out. And I guess they looked and seen that I couldn't fit in the pants that was allegedly worn by this guy. They knew what size pants he wore from my DMV. And they said, well, there's, you know, there's no way this is the guy. You know, I couldn't fit him. What, it's what I always say is one time in my life being fat was good for me. <laughs> <laughs> so they disregarded me as a suspect, I guess. All that information was gone from the file when, when uh, and we just, you know, found this out. That was part of one part of me getting out was when the Innocence Project was working on my case that we found that the detectives from the night of the crime, one was in Arizona, one was in Florida. We started checking with them and they're like, yeah, we, you know, that guy had been down there several times trying to, yeah, that's, 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 yeah, what happened? Why do you think it happened? It happened due to vendetta of one of my bosses didn't like me, didn't care for me. It was an ex-police officer and uh, just started taking my information to the police department. Do you think he was actually convinced that you did it, or was it just like he didn't like you? Because that's a big thing to accuse somebody of, raping three people. Correct. We've proven in court that he took my information down on four separate occasions. 
trying to get me hooked up on something. You think he actually thought you did it, though, or was it just like him being I, Evo? Or does it, I, I guess it doesn't matter. Yeah, I can't say what his thoughts were, but it definitely happened on his cue. Why do you think they've tried so hard, though, to keep you in there? All this evidence. I know, I know people don't want to be wrong, but it's got to be more <laughs> crazy. Well, you hope it is. You know what I mean? Like when we were talking earlier, you don't ever want to think that somebody's going to prison who didn't do it. I don't know. I'm, I mean, I'm here in Dayton. I live in Fairborn. If I start talking about my opinions of it, there's no telling who's going to be knocking on my door. But I've got my opinions of why this happened and, and why they continue to fight it. And like I said, people don't want to be wrong. All the evidence that we had proven my innocence, all the evidence we have proven the other person who committed the crime, nobody cares at that prosecutor's office. So that they never charged that other person? Did not. We've got some crazy facts on that, too, that just, just blows your mind. What can people do? What can the average person do to make sure that this doesn't happen? University of Michigan is doing a thing of tracking all exonerations in America and the world. Since 1989, 2,450 people have been exonerated. Now, they're going on back past that. You know, they're working on going past that. Those 2,450 people served 21,550 years in prison. This happens every day, and it happens everywhere, and for all various uh, crimes. Like I said earlier, there's a gentleman out of Michigan, 47 years. The best thing you can possibly do is to be an informed person. Just because the news outlet is screaming and hollering, this guy's this guy, this guy, this guy, or the police, or the prosecutor, or whoever, form your own opinion. You know, just don't go on the junk that's out there. Another biggest issue are wrongful convictions is junk science. There's so much junk science out there that people believe is the facts, and they're not. The FBI done away a couple years ago with hair analysis because so many people were in prison for crimes they didn't commit. There was a gentleman in prison who was convicted because they said his hair matched the hair of a German shepherd. Whoa. So finally, the FBI just did away with that, and, and there's still more junk science out there that people believe. You need to be informed. If you're going to be on a jury, listen to what's happening. Just don't believe everything that's being thrown at you. Formulate your own opinion. Just because eight other people are saying convict him and four other are saying not, or eight other are saying not guilty... Make your own mind up. Someone's life is in the balance. My personal opinion, when someone takes it to trial, I want to look at that even more because they're being offered deals of less time. And you'll look, you know, another thing is with this, a lot of guys who've been through the system will take a deal just because they know how it works. They came to me and offered me 30 days. 30 days? Yeah, 30 days. And it was halfway through the trial. Would, would you take 30 days and we'll drop it down? I said 30 days, 30 minutes, 30 years. I didn't commit this crime, and I never will say I did. You know, I've seen the parole board several times, and same thing. They want you to admit your guilt. How do you admit guilt to something you didn't do? How do you show remorse for something you didn't do? And they continuously giving you time. The last time the Ohio parole board seen me, they said, Mr. Gillespie, it appears you may be innocent, but we're not here to judge innocence or guilt. We're here to impose the sentence to court order. And gave me four more years. And I was out that same year that they'd done that to me. But the, the evidence was overwhelming that I didn't commit this crime. No one cared. Why are you so passionate about this? I mean, a lot of people would have took their freedom and ran for the hills. There's so many guys that are in prison for crimes they didn't commit. There's too many people. There's 2.3, 2.4 million people in the United States in prison. If 1% of those people are not guilty, that's way too many people. And we're looking at an average of 6 to 8%. 
of people being wrongfully convicted out of that population. So you're, you're close to 20,000 people. You know, that's too many people for crimes they didn't commit. So someone's got to scream and holler. You know, I know guys that are in there now that absolutely had nothing to do with the crimes they're locked up for. I got a friend in there right now, been in 30 years. He's 84 years old, seeing the parole board, waiting oh, wow. to see the parole board on a crime that never even happened. 84 years old. 84, yeah. Been waiting since December on a parole uh, decision. Is there anything that can happen to make you feel like whole or that your that your life? No, is... nothing's ever going to change what they've done. And let me tell you what, I'm I'm mad as hell about it. It's not going to dictate my life every day. But there's nothing that they can do to fix what they've done, you know, unless they've got a machine to take me back, give me my 20 years back, you know, actually 27 years of fighting this whole deal. There's nothing they can do. And people believe when you walk out of prison, you're automatically giving millions of dollars. That's the biggest farce that there is. Half the United States does not compensate. Ohio just fixed their compensation bill. Uh, it's still a very high standard to be compensated in Ohio. We've gotten uh, 28 people out, and about half of them will never be compensated because the statute is so hard and so high to get. That's the first perception people have is that they give you millions of dollars and it fixes it. If you look at Ricky Jackson, who's served 39 years, how much money is enough to give a guy who's 30, his entire life in prison? Right. Money doesn't fix it. People think it does, but it doesn't fix it. Because once you walk out of prison from a wrongful conviction, the PTSD almost overwhelms you. And I'm not disregarding what happens to soldiers or anything right. like that, because that's a whole different world there. But just the stuff that you see in prison, the violence and stuff, that doesn't go away. I don't know if there's anything that they could possibly fix. My parents went through absolute misery. They're buried in debt right now because of this. What do you do to fix all that? My mom spent half of her life screaming and hollering, my son's not guilty. It was funny because she had all these friends, you know, before this happened. And then as she's arguing and screaming and hollering about this, people would see her and be like, well, you know, they'd see her in a grocery store like, ah, I'm not going to listen to it today. Yeah, I'm going to go on the yeah, side. Right. I'm, going, I'm going to get I'm, some milk yeah. right now. <laughs> <laughs> that's right. Yeah. So uh, that's, you know, what happened to her. You know, my dad worked, worked himself to death. He just work, 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 just to try to pay and just keep him from losing everything. That's crazy. My dad worked seven days a week, 16 hours a day for a year straight, just keeping us from losing everything. That's amazing. Yeah, yeah. You can't you can't get that back. No. 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 There's nothing that can fix that. So what is life like for you now? Life is absolutely magnificent for me right now. I have been very fortunate that I had my parents were still alive. You know, my brothers and sisters have done good in life, and I had a home to go to. A lot of our guys don't have nothing. You know, when you're exonerated, you're better off to have a parole if you don't have anyone on the street, because when you're exonerated, you're just out the door. You're kicked out the door. You don't get a sorry or nothing. It's just out the door. You, you didn't go. get a sorry at all. Uh, no, no, I'll never see that. Mm -hmm. That'll never happen. That I don't ever. It's very rarely happened ever in America. Um, so uh, I, I was fortunate. My parents were alive, so I had a place to go and and live. So uh, you know, I don't. Uh, uh, I wasn't up against trying to find a place to sleep that night. I've had a lot of friends who've helped me out and. Uh, I get to travel the world. I've been to Spain. I've been to London. I've been to Ireland. I've been all over. The Dayton. Been, <laughs> been all over Dayton. <laughs> been all over Ohio, three-quarters of the United States. It's been amazing. It's been great. You know, going to concerts, listening to the music that I listened to when I was painting in, in the prison. I was doing a small Airstream while I was in prison out of trash, making a little model Airstream, and uh, listened to a song called Soul Shine. In uh, 1995, it came out, and uh, last year I got to meet Warren Haynes, the guy who wrote the song. Oh, that's cool. It was amazing. Friday, I'm going to Toledo to meet Dwight Yoakam, who wrote a song that I listen to all the time in prison. 
called 20 years. And strangely enough, I did 20 years. 1986, Dwight Yoakam came out with this song, 20 years, about wrongful conviction. Nobody was even talking about wrongful convictions in 1986. Beautiful girlfriend, just living life, having fun. So you're happy. I'm 54 years old and live in the same room I grew up in and love it. Said nobody. (laughs) 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 But, uh, but yeah, I'm very lucky to be able to do that. You can say I'm living life. I'm broke. Living with my parents. I'm a senior daycare provider. (laughs) (laughs) But you know what? You're not in jail, right? That's right. Yeah. I I would sleep under a bridge before I go back there. You know, that's the most miserable place on earth. And here's the thing, man. When you sending all these people to prison, some of them are getting out. Some of them are coming home. 70 to 80% of the people in a minimum security prison are going home. The conditions in prison are horrendous. The violence is horrendous. The attitudes in prison is horrendous. These people are coming back out to society. We need to fix the prison system to where we have some people who can get out and get a job, a living wage, and who are not just hateful and mean from the environment that they've spent so much time in. We need to fix it because they're coming out. Yep. If they did or didn't do it, they're right. coming it doesn't, out. Right. It doesn't matter, you know, uh, innocence or guilt. They're still coming out. They're still humans. They're still people. Why are we treating people so wrongly in America? That's a million-dollar question yeah. right there. Yeah. And why is the prison so full of drug addicts? The prisons are chock-packed full of drug addicts. There's no help in prison for a drug addiction. Nothing. They get drugs in the jail and everything else, yeah. and it's just you can go on and on and on. Get me started on that one, yeah. Prison reform, right? Yeah, we need it. You know, we need parole reform. We need prison reform. And this guy's been in prison forty plus years. If you're not going to let him out, why do you keep taking him to the parole board? Just tell him you're not going home. Why give the hope that you're going to go home? You're going to see the parole board. What is the reason for the buildings being called Department of Corrections and Rehabilitations if you're not letting people out? The rehabilitation part is like one thing we always have a problem with. Isn't yeah. It? Yeah. Yeah. It's a global crisis. You know, it's a thing that happened in the 80s and 90s of mass incarceration. And these people are still in prison. Mass incarceration has overwhelmed the world, mostly in America. But it's it's something that needs to be fixed. Just mass incarceration in itself, you know, not talking about the wrongful convictions. We have to have other alternatives to some of this stuff. Yeah. Well, cool. Um, Hey, is there anything else you want to talk about that I didn't ask you about? What the Ohio Instance Project is, it's a law clinic at the University of Cincinnati. Second year law students can apply to be accepted. We, We take about 20 students every year. They're on the project for a year. So their whole second year of law school is there. And it is one of the most amazing programs that a law student could possibly go through. It doesn't matter if you're going to be a prosecutor. It doesn't matter if you're going to be a defense or or a business law or whatever. The education that you get from it, the experience you get from it is unbelievable, unmatched by anything because you are actually writing briefs. The clinical professors are reviewing and making sure everything's good. You are hunting evidence. You are talking to eyewitnesses. You are going to the police station looking for evidence there. You're talking to the officials there. The things that you get to do is just unbelievable with this program. Let me tell you what. I wish every single student we had was a prosecutor if they came out of there and went to be a prosecutor because they understand that mistakes can be made. Just don't close your eyes and go on and say, I'm right, I'm right, and go on with keeping people locked up. Fix the problem. I think it goes back to what you were saying, too. People don't treat people like people. Right. It's like you're dealing with human beings who have lives and everything else. Yep. 
So our program is amazing. I had personally had over 24, 28 students you know, throughout my time with the Innocence Project, uh, working my case. It was the longest case they've had that I'm sure will be beat here before long. Students are something that are just an amazing part of it. You know, I'm still in contact with almost every one of them. Uh, they've went on and done great things, and, and a lot of them will still talk to my mother. One thing that my dad, when he retired, he started making apple pies, and, <laughs> and all the students were like, I hope I get the Gillespie case. I hope I get the Gillespie case. Go, <laughs> go up and get some apple pie. <laughs> so... Uh, yeah, it's it's been really great. Uh, the, the program is amazing. I, like I say, for a kid who's going to law school, it is one of the best programs you can possibly take at the University of Cincinnati. Sounds amazing. It is. It is absolutely great. Well, hey, thanks a lot for coming in here and talking to me. This has been awesome. I yeah. feel like a lot of people are going to learn a lot. Yeah, and I was talking about, you know, I got to meet Warren Haynes, and I'm getting ready to meet Dwight Cope. I'm still trying to meet Dave Chappelle. <laughs> Hang out in Yellow Springs. You might just run into him. <laughs> Don't want to say told you so, but told you so. Didn't I tell you that Dean had a story you needed to hear? Don't forget to tell your friends and family members all about this episode of the What Had Happened Was podcast. And if anybody has a connection to Dave Chappelle, dot, 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 you know what to do. Find out more about the Ohio Innocent Project and how it has helped get 28 men and women exonerated on the University of Cincinnati's College of Law website. The What Had Happened Was podcast is written, produced, edited, and blah, blah, blah by me, Amelia Robinson of Dayton.com. The show is recorded in the WHIO radio studios and features artwork by the extraordinary Troy Liming of TL Create of Columbus. Until next time, bye-bye, dot, dot, dot. You know what to do.